Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, powered by Christianity Today. Well, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you know that my co-host, Doug, is currently on sabbatical. And occasionally, we've heard from him throughout his sabbatical experience, and sometimes we do individual episodes. This is one of those episodes. If you're a new listener, my name is J.R. Briggs, and it's this conversation we're about to have with a guest is incredibly rich. On this episode, we talk with an acquaintance of mine about one of my favorite topics, discipleship. But more than that, we're going to talk about embodied discipleship, following Jesus that's rooted in actually following Jesus, what we call praxis-oriented discipleship. And you're going to learn that this is something that our guest is passionate about as well. Let me introduce you to our guest. Mark Scandret is the founding director of Reimagine. His multidisciplinary studies in apl- is, are in applied psychology, family health, and theology, and they've shaped his approach to learning and transformation. He's a sought-after voice for creative, radical, and embodied faith practice. He frequently speaks at universities, churches, and conferences nationally and internationally, and also serves on the adjunct faculty for the D-Min program at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's also on the creative team for the Nine Beats Collective, a global project exploring the Beatitudes as a 21st century vocabulary for living the way of Jesus. Mark lives with his wife, Lisa, and their three adult children in an old Victorian in San Francisco's Mission District. He loves walking city streets and discovering beauty in unexpected places. He is passionately engaged in sustainability practices and efforts to create safe neighborhoods for all people through organizing to end police brutality. I first heard Mark speak at a gathering in Glorieta, New Mexico, almost 20 years ago. I've never heard at that time anybody talk like this before of describing the kingdom life in a way that is accessible and requires our full participation. It, it, it was an eye-opener and a game-changer for me 20 years ago, and I'm excited to be able to reconnect with Mark after all these years. You're going to enjoy this fascinating conversation with Mark Scandret. Well, Mark, I know that this book that we're going to talk about today has been out quite a while. Normally we have people on that maybe have a book that just came out a few months ago. This one's, I think, over a decade, right? This book, book's been it's out a right while. It's right at 10 years this month. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I know that you've written so many other wonderful books along the way, but I want to explore this important topic of discipleship. Uh, that's a, a word, the D word is talked about a lot, but as, as one of the things I love about you and the, your approach to it is very Willardian, and we talk about Dallas World all the time on this podcast, but how it's rooted in praxis. And that is so important. I'm curious, Mark, when did that first hit you that we can't just talk about Jesus? <laughs> We just can't come up with cool, theoretical, brilliant ideas. We actually have to have an embodied presence in discipleship. When did that first come about for you? You know, um, I would say it was my first instinct when I read the Gospels mm. as a 12, 13-year-old. I read those red letters, and I was like, Jesus is so wise, and he's telling us how to live on planet Earth. Uh, and he he wants us to learn to live like him. And so I just started trying to do those things. 
And I immediately noticed shifts happening in my life and in the energy between me and other people. And then I got catechized as a Christian. I got discipled. And, and the people who discipled me were like, um, I don't think they said, hey, what you do doesn't matter. But, but the, what they did communicate was um, knowing scripture and having your theology nailed is more important than actually following Jesus or, or following his instructions for life. Like we're into, are you pre-trib, pro-trib, mid-trib? Uh, do you think it's free will or God's sovereignty and predestination? So the energy went towards those topics rather than, um, than I think a simple approach to saying Jesus had the words of eternal life. He knows how life works best. Let's just try. And so I had to find my way back to that as an adult and return to what I knew worked when I was 12 or 13 years old. I love that you use the word catechized because there is a catechism that exists. And unfortunately, some of it is more doctrinal. And I know you and I aren't saying that doctrine is not important, but the priority is so out of whack. Why does that still continue? I mean, your story is not a rare story. Mm-hmm. Why is it that this catechesis towards the head and doctrine only, as opposed to practice, why is that perpetuated still today? I think that there's some long historical precedents that we are find ourselves in. And if I was going to summarize the major themes in how discipleship's been done uh, in the West in the last hundred years, I would say it's tended to be um, individualistic, information-driven, and disconnected or dishonest about the real stuff of our lives. Mm. Um, and there's probably some sociology around uh, around both all three of those things as well. But I, America, uh, Western culture tends to be think in terms of me and my relationship with God, my my righteousness, my forgive, forgiveness of sins, um, and not quite see the we of give us this day our daily bread, um, you know, or, or how we participate in community. So um, obviously, I think the enlightenment and our emphasis on um, truth statement, propositional truth statements, probably, you know, we, we fixate on getting the words right, not always realizing that the words symbolize re, uh, ac- actual reality <laughs> that can be experienced. Mm. Um, and and I think it's it's hard to be honest. You know, it's vulnerable to be to be honest. But when I look at how Jesus made disciples, it was in stark contrast to those three things. He he um, he invited people to be disciples in community the Talmudim. He, um, he taught not just with statements or wisdom sayings, but he threw people into risky adventures. You know, before the disciples ever went to seminary or finished the seminar, he was like, hey, let's go to these towns and tell them the kingdom of God is at hand and heal the sick and, you know, feed some hungry people. <laughs> and so he was really showing them this is a way of this is this is how reality works. It's not just a theory or idea. Um, and 
you know, um, uh, maybe if if it's not too much to say, I think the emphasis that we've had on Christianity being about how to be prepared for when you die has made us skip over everything that Jesus said about how to live life now. Mm. And so Mm. we've we've overemphasized good news for the future and not really paid attention to the good news of fullness of life in this moment. Yeah, and the Lord's Prayer, that idea, you know, it's not nuance. I tell people it's it's not about taking earth to heaven when we die. It's right, it's just bringing earth or heaven to earth as we live right now, today. You know, in the book, you you talk about being, and I love this phrase. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote it specifically. You said it being a practical approach to spiritual formation that is serious about scripture, action focused, communal experiential and connected to real world and challenges and opportunities. I love that. So right from the jump in chapter one, you talk about this being an invitation to experiment. I had to chuckle because we use the phrase kingdom experiments all the time in our church. So we got another kingdom experiment we're launching. We got another kingdom experiment. And so I'm curious, unpack that a little bit. What, what is the role of experimentation? Because I'm not sure that's a word a lot of Christians think of when they think about joining with Jesus. Talk about yeah. some of those experiments and the spirit of experimentation. So um, I think one of the apostles said, find out how to please the Lord, sort of suggesting that we're this, this is something that you have to discover along the way. You have to try some things on and um, figure out how in your habits and um, life practices, how, the, how this works out. I think um, I like to think about Jesus' first disciples, he they definitely encountered an experience of um, overwhelming acceptance and care, and then they he started giving him instructions, and they trusted him, and their lives became transformed as they trusted his guidance in life, and so. They they had to they had to act on it, and I, I call that an experiment where you you think about where you're at right now, imagine what's possible, and say what are the steps we might take that would help us live in in that vision of reality. And so it's it's a bit of trial and error. I think risk is important to this as well. Um, I didn't write a lot about it in the book, but it was in the back of my mind is adult learning theory. Mm-hmm. Um, Adults learn very differently than children. Children are sort of blank slates, so you fi- you you want to fill their minds with information. Adults learn um, primarily when they feel like they have a problem that needs solving. They are able to interrogate why they're in that situation. There's a there's a lot of self awareness and analysis that goes into it, and then they. They, when they come to a tentative solution, they take action and then reflect on, did, did that help? Mm. Did, did it make things better? Mm. And I, th- I think like it, like we, we need to apply that good wisdom about how adult learning works to discipleship. Mm. One of the things that um, when I teach my students at the seminary, I say that Jesus likes to take us on, it takes his followers on three different types of field trips. So that there are mental field trips that he asks good questions, right? Forces them into new ways of thinking. Um, and he, then he, he takes them on emotional field trips, telling them stories, right? Parables or, or grander stories. And then he takes them on literal field trips, right? Look at the birds of the air. Look at the fields. Like, 
right? Let's let's people watch the woman throwing in the two mites, you know, like, right? And you're you're embracing that and bringing that back it, to the priority it needs to be. And you mentioned a common hero of ours, Dallas Willard, in the book, where you said uh, that the to experience the kingdom of God, it's a group of people who should get together and simply try to do the things that Jesus instructed his disciples to do. I mean, that's just so Willard that taking something so brilliant and making it as so plain as possible. And, you know, some people would say creating a culture that's like a gym or a training facility or training center or a greenhouse. Uh, There's a place near us. It's, it's kind of a, uh, it's not any sort of Christian uh, place, but it's called the becoming center, which I Mm. love that phrase, the Mm -hmm. becoming center. I wish every church would be a becoming center. Yeah. But you use the word in the book dojo, and you talk about a Jesus dojo. Talk about what is a dojo, people that may not be familiar. I remember you yeah. talking about it in Glorieta, New Mexico, the dojo concept 20 years ago. So it's yeah. still with you, at least in the book. What is a dojo? What's a Jesus dojo? So I don't use that term very often because it's not from my home culture, and I'm really at risk for cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. But um, dojo in Japanese means place of the way. And it connotes a practical practice space, so um, where you can develop skills. And so I thought, well, to, to to be and make disciples of Jesus is a lot more like a gym or a karate studio than a college lecture hall. If you look at how Jesus walked with his disciples, and somehow we've made it all about the college lecture hall. The, the the one communicator in front of the crowd um, telling them what's in their head, what the others should know. And um, and I think what it what would it be like if we learned to be more in practice spaces? And I, I'm convinced um, good information is no longer scarce. And there's never been a time where we have had more access to good information. You know, on my phone, I can get, uh, I can get, I can Wikipedia almost anything and get a, a, a data download of almost any topic. Um, and, um, you know, um, in most conversations, I have people say, oh, did you hear this podcast or did you read this book? Like the ideas are all around us um, and, and we're spouting them to each other. But what is scarce is space where we actually can work out the implications of the truth of the gospel together. And um, most of us do not have the self-discipline or the, like, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the courage to live that out it, as individuals. We need the kamatatus. We need the community of shared practice to help us live into of the flourishing life. So let's talk uh, to those pastors that are going, okay, Mark, I get it. I want to do it. I don't really know how, or maybe I lack the courage to do it. So you talk about creating a participatory culture. As in your chapter on creating space for shared practices, and that may be where pastors really want to say, okay, how do I do this? You say, what we choose to do when we gather says a lot about what we value and how we believe transformation happens. Most of us need less time in a museum or stadium and more time together in a studio or gym uh, creating and training. And then later you said, we may need to renegotiate our contract of leadership from service provider to practitioner or guide. Leaders need to begin to see themselves not just as hosts, 
caregivers, or communicators, but also as initiators and coaches who invite people into acts of obedience. So that's a lot of what you were saying just previously. Mm -hmm. How do we go about cultivating that? What are some presuppositions or maybe even some practices that pastors can do to create a culture where that happens? I think it starts with the vision. So if you look at just the Sermon on the Mount as an example, there's a picture there of a new kind of life. I call it Jesus' manifesto of a new way of life. So, um, you know, I I don't want to try and exhaustively describe it, but I'll just say it's a new way of living in in relationship to other people. You learn to love your enemies. You learn to be open-handed with um, time and money. You learn to live with less anxiety and more gratitude. And um, uh, so imagine a church community where you say, uh, the, the leadership says, we will help you. We are here to help you experiencing the experience, the flourishing of life in the kingdom of God that you were created for. We, we can help you overcome your worry and anxiety and live with more peace and trust. We can help you learn to focus on what matters most in life instead of being distracted and hurried. We can help you let go of resentments towards the people who have been the cause of your deepest wounds and trauma. Um, you know, we can help you uh, love and bless people that you find difficult and who have hurt you before in your life. Um, imagine, <laughs> like, that, that, that I think is really what the, uh, the Jesus intent for his disciples was and, and, and for us as well. So if we were going to help people live with less hurry, um, have less worry and anxiety in their life, um, reconcile in broken relationships, how would we go about doing that? We'd need to do more than just tell people what they should do or tell them why. That might be part of it, but we'd need to create a space where people could practice and develop skills in living in those kingdom react that kingdom reality. Um, so it means a change in structure. Instead of one person talking, we need a place where many people get a chance to process. Um, there, there would need to be exercises like um, journal about this, share with the person next to you about um, your story about this experience in your, in your life. So it'd have to be much more interactive and the, the one who is leading would have to be someone who knows how to do this stuff from their lived experience, not just what they read in a book, but say, hey, I've worked on forgiving people who have hurt me. I've worked on releasing my worry and anxiety and learning to learn to trust God more. Um, I've learned to move from bitterness to grat- gratitude. Here's, some, here's how I, I'll show you how to do it. you know, like, just like Jesus said, watch how I do it. And you'll learn this way. So um, I, I think one of the shifts for the leader, and and I went through this painfully as a 24, 25 year old pastor was I realized, I'm just getting up and doing book reports to my congregation on um, a, a, a text that I looked at, looked up the Greek verbs for and uh, read eight books about and I'm telling you what I, what I know. I, I wasn't telling them 
giving much guidance on how to live in a new way. Um, and so I just, something clicked for me, like, I want to become the kind of leader who, who can equip people from my lived experience about following the life-giving paths of Jesus. I love that experimentation. And the reason why we love this idea of experiment is experiments fail a lot, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? And so if we launch a new initiative or say, this is what we're going to do, and then it fails, we go, oh, no. But we go, oh, it's an experiment. What did we learn from it? Let's tweak it. Let's adjust it. Let's change it. Let's try something else. And there seems to be more freedom and less pressure with experimentation than there does with launching some new thing or new program. So for pastors, I have a couple of specific recommendations. One is that, that I've sort of said already is that you learn, you, you mine your life experience for how you lead and teach. Mm. What, what, what have you learned about walking with Jesus that you can mm. share with others? Mm. A, a second would be that you don't, that you start to see that part of your job description is your own training in righteousness and justice. Oh, that's good. So, and that not in isolation. Like what I've noticed is a lot of a lot of leaders nowadays have learned to have a spiritual director to go on retreat. Um, some some have even learned the benefit of like service, particularly to those in suffering and struggle. But until it's shared with others, it it's like a it's like a riches that doesn't get uh, spread around. Mm. And so I'm like. So I encourage um, parish leaders to say a significant portion of my week should be spent trying to practice and live out the ways of Jesus with others. So I'm going to take people along with me to pray. I'm going to, as Jesus did, I'm going to take people along to heal um, as Jesus did. I'm going to, I'm going to take people on a walk through Samaria. Where, where is the Samaria and the woman at the well in our Mm. uh town or community or city and to to, and to to see that as part of the job description and then obviously there's some techniques for inviting people hey what did you notice when we were talking with that person what feelings came up for you um you, you know things like that and then i think the other the other key thing is um renegotiating the contract so we have these implicit contracts of what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a pastor, and they don't. Those implicit contracts tend to be about um, being teacher or cruise director, to put it to put it kind of bluntly, <laughs> like so, social program organizer. True, <laughs> yeah. and and um, you know, I think that. So I I do this whenever I preach somewhere. As I say, I'm aware of the contract of the situation I'm in right now. My job is to be interesting, be wise, and entertaining. And your job is to laugh at my jokes, take notes, nod, and then shake my hand and say I did a good job when when you walk out. Mm. But let's be honest. 
I'm not changed by that and you're not changed by it. Mm, wow. What if what if we tweak our contract? So I'm going to be, first of all, I'm not going to talk the whole time. Mm. I'm going to ask you some questions and invite you to talk back to me or talk with one another. Because we our discipleship is embodied, I may ask you to stand up or move around the room or to, to bow on the floor or do something with your body, look into one each, each other's eyes. And then um, another thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take a, a risk to be a bit more vulnerable with you about the broken places in my life so that, so that you, you understand that I'm in process. And I'm going to invite you to face some of the, the ache in your life because mm. Jesus' answers for us don't mean anything unless they are really connected to these pain points in our lives. I love it. I love it. I love this. It seems as though, Mark, that there is a growing number of people who are willing to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, but seem to cast off the idea of him as our master teacher. And it seems that that's what you're leaning into. I just would love to see one professional athlete interviewed after a game that say, I'd love to thank my Lord, Savior, and master teacher, Jesus Christ, for the win today. <laughs> right? We just don't do that. Like, it just doesn't happen. So this idea of master teacher, I know, is what drives you, as it should drive all of us. And Jesus never corrects anybody who calls him a teacher, right? It's just an amazing starting point of then Lord and Savior comes later, but he never corrects people. And that, mm. I think that's so telling. Um, with that being said, I know that Reimagine, I, I wondered if you would just tell us about Reimagine and the ways in which yeah. you're helping people enter into that idea and restoring and reprioritizing Jesus as master teacher and how they live. Yeah. So I had... Um... A quick couple little snapshots. I uh, we came here to San Francisco's church planters in uh, 1998. Um, we did house churches for a couple of years because I thought that was a better model than big church um, for authentic community and discipleship. But we started to realize um, doing things in a living room that you do in an auditorium isn't fundamentally different, <laughs> and and so my thinking started to shift a bit. And I actually thought back to what I told you earlier about being a teenager. I was like, the most meaningful times to me have been when I've been inspired to go do something based on the red letters. Mm. So what if, what if we could start doing that? And so on a very casual basis, I just started in, uh, I, I started inviting people into my discipleship impulses. Mm. I, need to, I need to learn about silence and solitude uh, can I, and so I start practicing it and invite other people to do it with me. I, I need to learn about God's heart for the poor. And so I started spending time at a local community center and I invited other people to do that with me. So I was learning this more dif different way of leading as guide rather than answer man. Um, and then it, we took it another level in about 2005 where um, we, well, I'll back up and say this because you mentioned it, but I think it's a good enough thing to, to share. I was spending a lot of time with Dallas Willard in these very heady conversations, intimate settings, living rooms. Uh, it was very a very special time. And we'd all read Divine Conspiracy. And I was usually the youngest person in the room. And I was a bit of a punk. And I said, I said Dallas, this is an elegant picture of the kingdom of God how I'm, I'm a leader. How would I actually do this with a group of people? And he said, 
in a deceptively simple way. Look at what Jesus did and taught and then try to do that stuff together. And I thought, duh, this was my first impulse when I first came to Christ. And, um, and, and then I thought about a little bit more and I, I thought, how, how often have I actually as a leader tried to do that? And so we, we sort of took that as our marching orders. And so what we do is um, um, a group of us read through the book of Luke and identified every place where there was a potential to experiment with a teaching of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And later I went through all four of the gospels because I'm from a biblicistic tradition. We got to get our, get, get the facts right before we, we, t- we act. And so then we just c- kept a log of the things Jesus would tell people to do. And we just discern, prayed, discerned, and picked one to start with. Um, and every couple of months we'd launch a new experiment and get about 20 to 35 people to go on the adventure with us. Hey, anybody want to experiment with what Jesus said about money and stuff? He said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Let's try and sell half of what we own and give, give the money to help with global poverty relief. Um, or, hey, a lot of us have a, heart, have a heart for our unhoused neighbors and we don't quite know how to be good friends. Let's, let's spend eight weeks um, on an adventure of sharing meals and food and life with, uh, with the, the homeless community under the 101 freeway six blocks away. Um, hey, Jesus said some compelling things about living in reconciled relationships. Over the next month, a group of us are going to try to stop judging, um, forgive the people who have hurt us, and learn to speak the truth in love to people who have who have wounded us and see how see how the, that goes so i'm i'm imagining that there are some pastors listening i mean i'm like so excited by this mark but i imagine that there are pastors that are listening going mark that sounds amazing but if i did that in my church i think half the people maybe most of the people in my church would leave and I say that sort of jokingly, but I would imagine that listening right now, there are some that are going, Mark, the risk is too high. Now, I think I know how you'd respond, but I don't want to assume. But how might you respond to that person saying, if they leave, our giving goes down, maybe my job is in jeopardy. The whole system we're trying to prop up doesn't encourage that kind of radical experimentation of yeah. Jesus as our master. What do we do now? Well, I meet a lot of pastors who are deeply unsatisfied and unsettled in their current way of doing ministry. There's things they long to experience for themselves and see others experience that our current methodology is not getting to. But, but as you've sort of noted, we have an economic model based around pastor as information uh, teacher and um, dispenser cruise, cruise yeah. director. <laughs> yeah. And so, we might have to, we might have to find new models. Maybe it's bivocational. Mm. Um, uh, that like, there's some real consideration for that. I like to say though, go down, like, take some risks. Like, there's a lot, there's a lot more that can be done. I think because a lot of pastors are in that, um, that feeling triad of the enneagram. I. They're picking up on what what they anticipate people are thinking, what the group needs. 
I think we we almost play too far into that, and we might need to go. No, what what is how, what? Where should I be authentically leading to? And not everybody will be ready. So I I often I'll say like the the worst thing that a pastor can do with this kind of insight is to try and get everyone in their congregation on the same page going doing the same thing. So um, Jesus didn't try and do that. He spoke to crowds of thousands, had conversations with hundreds, and was on journey with with dozens or less. So in your congregation, there's probably ten to twenty percent of people who are ready to walk this out with you. Don't be discouraged by the people who are not in the space that where they're ready right now, mm. but find, find a way to give a meaningful part of your time to walking this out with, with that 10 to 20%. Mm. And okay. it'll become infectious and contagious to other people. Mm. Yeah. I always say, start with the hungriest people. Who are those people that are willing to like jump in? They don't have to be Christians forever. They, in fact, some of the hungriest people I know, unfortunately, are those that have not yet entered into the kingdom fully. And so they just go, yeah, I'll try that. I'm trying to learn how to trust Jesus. Yeah. How do I do that? Let me try. The other surprise is that we've found, and this is, this is true all over the world, less Christianized people are more naturally disposed to having Jesus as their rabbi than those of us who have been around for a while longer. Um, they don't know that we're not supposed to try and follow Jesus. In fact, and I, I don't know if you allow profanity on your um, podcast or not, but I'm just sure. going to quote somebody who um, was a, a banking executive here in the Bay Area. And in the downturn, she experienced a real crisis that um, she'd grown up mostly Buddhist and in New Age circles. But a grandparent had handed her a Bible. She turned to it after that economic downturn and thought, Jesus is the wisest person that ever lived. I want to follow this guy. It ended up at a local church. And she sat there on the back row for a couple of months. And then finally, out of frustration, went up to the leaders and said, you guys seem like really nice people. But like I've been reading the New Testament, and this Jesus is really good. When are we going to start doing the Jesus shit around here? <laughs> um, and so we we have, you know, it's just like that crowd in Matthew 11, hungry, tired, desperate, exhausted people longing for life-giving ways. And Jesus has those ways for us. And if we were willing to step into that mess with people, it's people want they long for life-giving ways. And unfortunately, in our current cultural milieu, I think when people end up needing practical, practical things in their lives, the churches, the, the uh, practical solutions to issues in their lives, the church is often the last place they go to look for that. And they'll be like, man, I started Soul Cycle, or I joined a, a strength training group, or I've joined AA or another recovery group, and it's changing my life. Uh, you know, I had adopted a new diet or I've, I've struck a friendship up with some, uh, you know, some, uh, someone across the boundary of race or class. Why, why aren't we inviting people into those more tangible things that we know are helpful to the development of the soul? That's beautiful. And as we end, 
if there are listeners that are going, my goodness, Mark, this is great stuff. You know, certainly we're going to give information about the book, but talk a little bit more about some of the things that you're doing just as we end here. If people want to lean in more with what you're doing, how yeah. might they begin to do that as a way of maybe needing some outside coaching or help to lean into practicing some of these experiments? Yeah. I would check out my book, Practicing the Way of Jesus. It is meant to be a manual, both a manifesto and a manual for how to do this. Um, I teach a doctoral course at Fuller Seminary that you can be audited every other year where we spend six months and I, and I walk with people through th them developing their own lab experiments and things like that. Um, I'm totally open to offering train, you know, regional training to ministers. The last few years, I've been traveling around the world, uh, doing kind of extended retreats and training. And then, um, most all the resources that we've created after practicing the way of Jesus have this action reflection process baked in. And the one that I've I've been tinkering on for the last five years, like a mad scientist, is around the Beatitudes as a window into the Sermon on the Mount. And it's um, it's called The Ninefold Path of Jesus. And I have a new book coming out with IVP next month on this. But I created a um, lab manual that's a couple, 150 pages that I tried to embed all of the wisdom of how to hold that space for action, reflection, discipleship in it. And, um, and so that's a resource that can be found at ninefoldpath.org. Org, great. and then Nine we've been path.org. Okay, yeah. great. And then great. we've been doing um, labs with leaders, uh, especially during COVID. Like, uh, like I didn't know what COVID was going to be like. I I led nine labs with leaders from fifteen different countries during COVID, where in five week segments we'd look at something Jesus teaches about life in the kingdom, and then take on a, a journaling practice, a daily habit and do an experiment each week based on it. And it's been so exciting for me to see the kind of transformation leaders are experiencing that they can share with others out of that. And so uh, maybe sign up at our website and you can get more information about the next round of those leader labs. That's what we Fantastic. Well, this has been so great to have you on, Mark. Thanks for the work that you're doing. Again, first being introduced to you almost 20 years ago. I'm so grateful for the way in which you're not only following Jesus, practicing experiments in the way of Jesus, but teaching other people to do the same. So what a joy. I, I wish that we could have another two hours. This has yeah. been so good. Let's do sometimes, it again sometime. Yeah. I, I mean, I interview people and I learn so much, but there are times where I have to go back through and listen to it again as a learner. And this is going to be one of those episodes. So thanks so much for your time. So grateful for your ministry. Great. All the best. Great to be with you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mark. I really wish that Doug were here with me so that we could process this further. But I will say this, after recording this episode, I told Mark that this is one of those episodes where I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to this because there is so much to glean in what Mark said. Now, I want to offer you a, free, a few resources before we go. Some of the resources, first of all, his book, Practicing the Way of Jesus, Life Together in the Kingdom of love. Now, this book, again, has been out over 10 years, uh, published by InterVarsity Press. Fantastic book. It's a book that I've required in the past. 
for a discipleship course that I teach at the seminary that I teach at, Missio Seminary here in the Philadelphia area. Such a fantastic book. And in fact, Mark said after we uh, finished recording, he said it may be um, that it's more important today than when he wrote it 10 years ago. And I think I agree with him on that. So pick up Practicing the Way of Jesus, Life Together in the Kingdom of Love. Also, one of the things that Mark does is he offers coaching and workshops and something that he calls leader labs for pastors and leaders who want to be more praxis-oriented with the culture that they're creating within their local church. I highly recommend this. You can find out more on his website, which is reimagine.org or at markscandrett.com. But reimagine.org, we're going to put both of those in the show notes that you can check that out. Uh, So look for those as additional resources. I want to leave you with a question. There was so much there that Mark talked about. I want to just ask you, what is the one thing that you found to be most helpful that messed with you in a really good way? And maybe even a follow-up, kind of part B to that is, how would you go about practicing, not just listening, not just learning something new in our head, how would you go about practicing this, putting it into action sometime within the next seven days? Well, brothers and sisters of the Monday Morning Pastor podcast, go. And as you go, may you remember that life in the kingdom is participatory. It's an invitation for you and also for you to teach other people to join in, to have experiments in faith. May you go realize, realizing that this experimenting God desires full participation. And when we participate with him, it's an adventure of grace on his mission to be able to renew and redeem the world, his world, but a way in which he's invited us in to participate with him. God bless and bless God.